Hi, I'm Kara Oakley. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, which is part of Fall for the Book's 25th anniversary celebration, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. So today we're talking with Salar Abdo, and he's the author of Out of Mesopotamia. Uh, we have a really wonderful conversation coming up with him about uh, both his fiction writing and um, his work uh, being embedded as a journalist in some of these conflict uh, conflict zones. And uh, we just want to really get right to the conversation with him today. Salar Abdo was born in Iran and splits his time between Tehran and New York City. He's the author of the novels Tehran at Twilight, The Poet Game, and Opium. And he's the editor of Tehran Noir. His latest novel is Out of Mesopotamia. Salar, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. So one of the first things that we and Saleh consider in Out of Mesopotamia is the idea of martyrdom. So watching soldiers take that first irreversible step towards it in war. Um, can you talk a little bit about your protagonist's role in the war and his obsession with these soldiers' motivations? Oh, certainly. Um, you know, when you when you work as a journalist or, or even a writer and you and your company, uh, you embed yourself with certain, and I'll say men because that was my experience uh, with these men, uh, many of whom are, uh, they, they're not only, uh, they're not only attracted to this notion of martyrdom, but uh, it's sort of ingrained into the very fabric of their everyday lives. Like that, that is an option, right? Like in, in life in America, we have options to become a lawyer or a doctor. In these men's lives, uh, you have an option to be a martyr. It's, it's a very powerful and strange and absurd and transcendental notion that, you know, it may have existed in the West, in the Middle Ages, uh, but it certainly doesn't exist now. Not, not on this scale. So Saleh, not being a, he, he's not part of the, the warrior class, but he hangs out with them and embeds with them. And by default, uh, you know, the in these geographies, particularly in that particular war, the border between uh, the man who does combat and the man who covers it is very is very blurred. There's no such a thing as a, you know, stand back journalist. It just it's almost laughable. So and so Salah becomes enmeshed in in combat itself, which is not he's not very good at. But and uh, but as that happens, he becomes more and more interested in in this uh, martyrdom umbrella that's a that's a part of the landscape that also he's grown up in in the middle east and particularly particularly is part of the shiite the shiite uh, mythology let's say because shiism in general is um it, it it has its very start by the idea of martyrdom and the first martyr and all of that so and then he tries to understand it he tries to understand it because people, his friends, are dying all around him all the time. And he's also fascinated, as I have been, 
by this um, stoic attitude to to that that I've I've witnessed in a lot of men, where you know you know life yes does go on, but uh, and there is grief, but at the same time there is also a sense that well the person you know finally found what they were looking for. Hopefully, inshallah, we will be next. That's a pretty powerful uh, uh, package to be a part of and uh, to try to understand. The novel sort of acknowledges that that martyrdom has these gendered implications. And, you know, you're also talking about the difference between, you know, somebody who might come back and life would go on for them. But one of the things Saleh thinks early on in the novel is there's there's this quote talking about martyrdom, saying it was the laziest of paths simply to die. Uh, theirs was calamity followed by the backbreaking grind of daily life. Um, and I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about that dichotomy. Absolutely. That's that's something in all of this. I've, uh, I, it's something I've always thought about in these landscapes because the burden, the onus of just about everything falls on women in a way that's almost impossible to explain in the West, just how much these women have to do things on a day-to-day basis, you know? So the, the guys, they go to war and it's almost a lot of times as horrible as it is, it's like going to the football match on a weekend, right? They, they hang out, they kill, they get killed. A lot of times, you know, they joke and mess around. They do what boys do. And then when they do get killed, who's left behind? I've seen this so many times in so many wars, not just this one. It's the women, it's the mothers who have to raise these kids, who have to provide for them in conditions that are really, really difficult. And, um, that daily grind of everyday life that men necessarily don't experience, women have to live with for the rest of their lives. Some of these women, you know, they might remarry the brother of the martyr, and then he will get martyred. I mean, it's just such a vicious cycle of uh, hardship. That's why Saleh thinks, as I do in in the novel, that Actually, getting killed is the easiest way out sometimes. That was such a surreal moment when he went to the Mars, when Sally went to the martyr's wife to try to fix her up with his soldier friend, but he'd already been martyred by the time he got there. And, you know, you're you're talking about such interesting sort of dichotomies between the front lines and back home. There's a lot in here about sort of beauty versus absurdity or beauty the beauty in absurdity, you know, the war versus art versus life. How do all of these opposites come together in the novel? I would say 90% of the novel is somehow a hundred percent of the novel is somehow related to my own experiences for instance as i was going back and forth to to iraq uh, i was also you know writing film scripts i was writing uh introduction to art books um and uh being part of the general uh 
what do you call it, the, the intellectual art landscape of Tehran, which is a, is a highly cosmopolitan place. There are many art galleries and, uh, and you know, there's a huge readership and all of the things that happen in the book are actually real there. It's a cafe society, people hang out. And uh, I, I was trying to, when I first actually began this book, my, my idea was to write a nonfiction book. And then I thought, you know, plenty of people have been doing that. And, you know, the reality is this was much more of a personal thing. Like I was, I was living a very strange life, right? I've, I've wrote, written about it in essays. Uh, whereas, and it's my life now today also, but, you know, somewhat different, but, you know, there's something to be said about, you know, being in a combat situation, because this is the 21st century, these things actually can happen easily. And it's, um, there's an ugliness to it and an anger that issues from that. You can be in a combat situation in the morning, catch a flight, not just to Tehran, which is maybe 700 miles away, but you can catch a flight, as I would often used to do, to New York and go straight, you know, catch a grab a cab from JFK Airport, go to my graduate class in creative writing and teach a course all within less than 24 hours. And this word, this discombobulation that I keep, Talk, uh, mentioning it, it was just it's been a it's been such a part of my life and it doesn't seem to ever go away and I wanted to I wanted to bring all of that and I didn't think I could do it in nonfiction. this was too personal I could have written a memoir but you know the absurdities you know the the deaths the, this whole martyrdom um, idea and uh, him going back and forth from the from the front lines back home to a place like Tehran where you know his friends in the cafe society the writers the, the you know the artists you know the theater folk you know these are things that I was experiencing as late as two weeks ago you know it's not it's never far away from me and uh, I wanted to in this book I also wanted to sort of convey what war in the 21st century actually looks like. It's very different. You can be in places where the brutality is just so acute. And I mean, you know, I was in this past summer, I was in combat situations in Ukraine. And that was a different sort of, a, you know, like it was, a, it was long distance, long range rockets. I mean, over us in places like Bakhmut in the Donbass region. But, and that, that can take the heart out of you in another way. But, you know, to be in Northern Iraq and to hear your enemy saying, God is great, Allah Akbar, and he's only less than a hundred yards away. It's nighttime. You can hear him. And he literally wants to cut your head off. He doesn't want to just kill you. He wants to cut your head off. And you're, you know, you're sitting there at night in a trench with some other guys and just listening to this. And, and uh, it can totally uh, mess with your head, right? And then the next day, 
you can't ride back to Baghdad or Erbil and you go back home to Tehran. And by that afternoon, you're having a cappuccino with your mates. And, and they're making fun of the war, making fun of the guys going to the war. And they have no idea that this war is practically at their doorstep while they drink their espressos and talk about art. Um, you find yourself becoming very angry. And uh, I've talked, you know, some of my best readers in America have been veterans, American vets who served in Afghanistan, Marines particularly. They, they talk to me about this stuff and uh, they talk about their anger. And I've talked to Vietnam. I really, what I experienced was how it feels to come back from these situations and others are just totally clueless about what's going on and how angry you can feel about that. And I try to convey some of that with Sala in the book, but I try to in general tr bring all of this together and write a novel which sort of conveys how extreme brut brutality and art and, you know, and some of the, you know, fraudulence of high art actually in this day and age, they, they all, they're all sort of part of the same package. You know, the guy bidding on um, artworks in Dubai or Doha or wherever, you know, is uh, for millions of dollars oftentimes in order to uh, loan their money from one place to another, is also supporting some faction in Syria or Yemen or Libya or whatever. So this is, there, there was a lot, and I tried to, without beating the reader over the bush with it, I tried to make it all personal in, within Salah's universe. And then, of course, you know, with all of that going on, he comes back and has to deal with his handler talking about his you know, his writing and everything that's in there. And that, of course, is a personal detail. Uh, you've had a handler as well, right? Can you talk maybe a little bit about that and sort of how that informed not just Sala as a character, but your writing in general? Sure. Um, I was just recently finishing up the edits of my forthcoming book. And um, I was in Tehran. It was late December. Uh, Christmas had passed. New Year's hadn't arrived yet. And, um, you know, I was, I have a place there and I was writing and editing, making corrections. And then when I finally finished it, I remember the date, December 27, 2022, I, I, I contacted him and I said, you know, like, I cannot tell you the circumstances I finished this because I just, I kept praying to God that let me finish this round of edits before they come knocking on my door. And knocking on your door doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get, you know, in prison or whatever, but that stress of, you know, it's, it's not going to help, you know, your corrections or your right, your writing. So therefore that's a very real thing that, you know, happened to, happens to me, happened to Salah. With, uh, with what, what I put in the book also, again, is part of something real that I sort of exaggerated in that one time when I did Tehran Noir uh, and I was editing and translating and there was some, it was a noir piece. I mean, it was a noir collection. So noir collections, you know, have, you know, crime, this, that, 
sex. And, uh, well, the powers that be didn't like it. And uh, they called me in. Uh, but the, the, the gentlemen who were, um, you know, talking to me, they were okay guys, you know. The, the notion people have in, in the world in general of these guys that they're just horrible brutes. But that's not necessarily the case. It depends what's the situation. These guys just wanted to find out what I'm about. And at some point, I found myself with the main guy with a with my own short story in that collection, for instance. He was upset with me, not because I had written a book or edited a book, but because he didn't like the way the short story ended. And we ended up, so we're in this four-hour interrogation where we're having a literary discussion about my short story and other things. And the other guy says, you know, we've translated into English from Persian. It goes something like this. We have chewed every sentence you've ever written, Mr. Abdo. And, you know, I'm sure all of you guys are writers. Have something to do with the literary landscape. I mean, does does a writer want anything more than to be every, every sentence of his to be chewed, even if that's the Ministry of Intelligence? And I just looked at the guy and I said, really? <laughs> Invite me back again. We, we can have another chat, you know. And then it went on like that. And I thought, you know, this really is one among many absurdities of living in these geographies because, you know, I'm sitting here talking to this guy about, you know, why, you know, you're... It, it was interesting because... The, the main character in the short story, for instance, was not the nicest guy in the world. He didn't like people, and and it, it was demonstrations and stuff, and he particularly didn't like this one guy who happened to be gay. So the handler, my handler, was happy with that, that this guy doesn't like these people. But then my character changes as a human being like he transcends himself becomes a better guy and in a moment in a very particular moment he helps this gay man in a demonstration and saves his life right and he didn't like that right so i was in an interesting position because the handler he was not a he was a well-read enough person but his understanding of the world had had a ceiling, right? You know, that ceiling did not go beyond understanding the 21st century, the LGBTQ world and all of that, right? It stopped here. So I realized we can only, we can talk until here and then it stops, right? And that was fascinating to me. It was fascinating because I could see that he was trying to understand but the world he came from did not. There, there was no, there was no uh, portal that he could go through, and I could not sit here in the Ministry of Intelligence in these four hours and give him a lesson on that. Maybe if I had more time, I would be able to do that, and I would because he had the capacity, and that that stuck with me. That stuck with me, and and then in the book. 
I mean, even the Proust part, it can comes from somewhere real. I I was doing an interview with uh, Chris Hedges, who was New York Times longtime war correspondent, and he said to me, he read he really understood like why somebody would take Proust to a war situation. He said, you know, I was covering Bosnia, and I took all of Proust with me, and I read it three times over in Sarajevo. I don't have to tell you guys reading Proust three times over anywhere how long that's going to take. But, you know, the reason we do it is that, you know, war has a lot of downtime. You know, there's, you know it's one of the boring, war is one of the boring things that you can do in life. Like you, you just, you start to pray that somebody shoots you, throws a rocket, something happens so that you can climb out of this boredom that you're in. So like, you know, so all of that, the Bruce, uh, the Handler, they're, they're all part of a, they're part of this soup that was, that was my life. And uh, I, I was fascinated by this Handler because I could see that he wants to understand, but he cannot make that one bridge, right? That one single bridge from here to there. And I thought, I actually like this guy. I like this guy a lot more than some of these, you know, anti-war poets that I know and all of this that, you know, you see them in the book. Because this guy, at the end of the day, he is what he is like this. This is him. Whereas those guys, they're disingenuous a lot of times. And again, I wanted to bring all of that in. And uh, I did. Or I hope I did. I <laughs> With Proust, you know, you you, you, t- you t- talk about the idea of having downtime during the war, and that was one of the things that sort of struck me in in the beginning of the book, where you think about why would you bring Proust to a war zone, and 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 Sally sort of realizes well, because maybe this is when you have the time to read it. Can you talk a little bit about your own relationship with with Proust's work, and um, why did you pick this particular book to kind of make central to your own novel? Years ago, when when I when I, one of the times I went back to Tehran, I I took eleven big boxes of uh, I took my library that I had at the time. I took it back to Tehran, and uh, I've been you know I've been a traveler all my life. So my I end up now I have barely any books. It seems like my books are in other people's homes, and this happened with these books also and my Proust. And uh, back then, in my late 20s, I was reading Proust. I was very, I was enormously uh, taken by, by the paragraphs, by the sentences, and by the, the, the psychology that this writer manages to get to, the, like the depths. And I was underlining, you know, a lot of pages. And I was at my friend's house while I was uh, starting the book, and I saw my one of my friends, and I saw my Proust collection in his shelf, and it stuck with me. And then later, as I was writing, I thought, okay, I'm going to I need a book, Proust. I called him and I said, Ali, can you go in my Proust and uh, just take a photograph of all the pages with my underlines in it and WhatsApp them all to me, and that's what he did. So those underlines are my underlines of Proust from my 20s that I used in the book. 
I, I love kind of seeing that connection between like your own copy of of the book and what actually ended up in the version that ended up in the novel. That's that's great. You you you've talked a little bit too about how events from your own life and, and your your own work as a journalist kind of end up in in the novel. And you've been embedded in a number of conflicts, most recently traveling to Ukraine. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about uh, about how that affects your own writing. There, there was um, there was something you had said in, in in a recent interview about that as a journalist, you're not always looking for the, the latest news, but for its oddities and quirks. And I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about about that in in Ukraine. You know, because I'm not, you know, I'm not a I'm not a journalist journalist, right? You know, I don't get paid by a certain news venue to go in places to do things. I sort of do my own thing and then and it ends up getting published somewhere or or for instance I get caught up. I got very caught up in what happened in Afghanistan. I was caught up when it been before, but after the fall of Kabul, I I became very involved with the resistance in the Hindu Kush. I wrote about them. And as recently as a month and a half ago, this this piece I wrote, and I, I worked on a documentary for BBC on them, you know, every single one of them to the last man were killed in this Taliban raid, you know. And these sorts of things, you know, and then somebody sends you the, the photo of this dead commander whom you highly respect and you've written about and uh, you know all of his sons escape and come to Tehran and then you meaning me less than a month ago I go to to see them and the smallest one is seven years old and his name is Salah you know it just may I say it, it just kicks your ass like it just like it just kicks knocks the wind out of you when you have to face these realities right and you know with ukraine again it was the same thing uh it's all part of the same big again the umbrella of I, i'm looking i'm looking for like for instance right now as we speak i'm translating a afghan writer uh, she's brilliant and she's written this collection of essays many of which i've already translated and published it's, it's going to be called the body of war it's about what happens to the bodies of literally what happens to the bodies of women during and after war it's a fascinating fascinating uh project i'm undertaking but like for instance in ukraine i'll give you one example i uh, they were they were about to there's this um uh, one uh, group of uh, Ukrainian fighters who have fa- who are known to have fascist tendencies, right? I forget their name, and uh, and uh, we were waiting and waiting for them to for the for the young commander to come. So the the Spanish crew that I was with, they working for El País, could interview this guy, and uh, and these are you know these are formidable warriors but also they have these tendencies anyway i, I got bored you know I, I get bored easily in these situations so i just took a walk in the city and you know it wasn't a good time to take a for an iranian to take a walk because my american passport it does say born in iran and uh, just it just then the news was coming in that iran is about to give russia all these drones 
and now rockets too. So like, you know, <laughs> it wasn't a very intelligent thing on my side, but I just started walking. It was in, it was in Kharkiv in the north, north of north east. And it was a it was an interesting landscape because that city has these, you know, it has uh, these glorious buildings, but the windows shattered, lights out. It was a, it was an eerie apocalyptic landscape. Nobody on the streets. I'm just walking. There's nobody there, and I come upon this bookstore, <laughs> this little bookstore, and there's this lovely young person in there I think maybe her name was Tatiana I don't remember and we just start to chat and you know I was interested in that moment like in this you know why is this bookstore open when everything else is closed and you know I had maybe four words of Ukrainian by then and she she had six words you know of English but she took me to the corner and said this is our this is our um English section and it was nothing but like children's books and then there was one book in there that's my favorite book of all time the Ukrainian word in, in English but with U Ukrainian you know like footnotes what is this book Graham Greene's uh, The Quiet American and uh, so I bought the book <laughs> and I started and you know I said goodbye and then they did their thing and they caught up with me and in the meantime, the police picked me up and they didn't notice my where I was born. And then they let me go. And then I said, what did you do? I said, I went to this bookstore and I got the quiet American. And then the Spanish, the Spaniard goes, Salar, all these days I've been thinking, this guy, Salar, he reminds me of the quiet American. And now you have this book. <laughs> like moments like that, or, you know, just... Moments on the, you know, eight kilometers from the Russian lines and these Ukrainian uh, soldiers, men and women, uh, I grew to really, really respect them. But one thing that really struck me is their love of their animals, their pets, right? These, you know, there's such harsh circumstances and everybody's, you know, doing this interview and that interview. I don't do interviews. I just kind of hang out and watch and I noticed like these soldiers, they took such delicate and loving care of the, their dogs, making sure that, you know, and that they, they were begging us because one of the dogs had had a bunch of, you know, little, and, you know, please take one or two of them. And that's this, this, this lovingness towards another, another life, living thing. When, you know, Russians are eight kilometers away, and you're being, you know, pounded by rockets indiscriminately every day. It just really struck me, just really. And in my essay uh, that I wrote about Ukraine, I write about these little moments. Like, you know, I, I, I'm in Odessa. I go to, I beg because I wanted to see where uh, the Odessa steps in that in the great film was uh, I wanted to see the great Odessa steps, but this young soldier was guarding it. Nobody could go there because it's a security risk. And I begged him and he looked at my passport. He saw my name, saw where I was born. You're born, you're, you're Muslim, yes. You're born in, you're Iranian, yes. 
And there was a moment of, you know, very tense moment for me. And then um, he looked at me and said, come with me. And there was nighttime. And then we just uh, went. And in, the, in, in that quiet of the evening, we just, the two of us just stood next to each other and watched the Odessa steps, right? And that was beautiful to me. That was, that was more meaningful to me than anything that I experienced during that war. So like little things like that I look for in in these situations. And I try to understand, you know, the, the woman who cuts off the heads of these people, that comes from a real place. But I I don't want to I don't want to make excuses for why anybody does anything, but I want to show that one can try to understand how somebody would get, you know, to a point where, you know, a woman counselor in, in, in Kurdistan, in northern Iraq, said to, she was the only counselor for this whole refugee camp one time. And she said to me, you know, uh, Salar, what, what do you say to, to a woman whose husband, brothers, sons, all of them have had their heads cut off in front of her and her, her daughter's rape. What do you, how, how do I counsel this person? And uh, the answer is there is no way to do that. And so these, these angers that exist in the world can manifest themselves in all kinds of ways. And as a writer, an occasional journalist, I want to understand that. And at the same time, like Solid does, I want to protect my subjects from becoming tools for the media, right? You know, this woman, this, this is the woman who cuts off heads. This, you know what I mean? So it's a fine balance. And unfortunately, working with documentarians a lot of times or, or war photographers, a lot of them are very good people, but a lot of them also, you know, they just want to catch that perfect image and further their career or whatever. And you as a writer, it's, it's like, I feel like one of my moral obligations in, in all the things I do is to see, always be aware of where I stand, where, where other people stand, where I stand, what my motivations are and how I never lose my moral compass in, in, in all the things that I do. Salar, we re we really appreciate you bringing us through all of these moments of in your writing and in this conversation today of beauty and pain and just the complexity of all of these situations. Because I, I, I think you're right. Often we only get a very kind of slim picture, the the picture or the video that we're given, and so it's difficult but also refreshing to see these the pockets of beauty to think about the absurdity and the yeah. dichotomy. So thank you so much for coming out to talk with us today. We we really appreciate it and had a had a wonderful time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm humbled and grateful. Thank you. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostic as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. 